Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. I'm going to go ahead and uh, finish moving to your seats, if not already. Um, so one of the things that we have been kind of moving in even more recently is that we want to continue to, to bind our community to not only what God is doing in Orlando and not only what God is doing in Central Florida, but what he's doing the world around. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had the honor of having Pastor Justin Johnson from One Church come and bring the word, and that was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and this week is another exciting one because we have our very dear friend, Aaron Gabriel Ross, uh, who's going to come and speak. If I could have, where is Aaron? Come on up. There you are. I can't, sorry, I can't see. Everyone give Aaron a round of applause. Um, Aaron has been a, a part of this community, a friend of this community for, for many years. Um, not only we've been graced by his presence with music, but also just that he's been able to share with so many of us in his journey and the things that he's learning. And um, so it just felt so wonderful to be able to bring him along uh, to speak into our series that we're doing, Signposts in the Mist. Aaron is an assistant professor at Southeastern University, so he actually knows what he's talking about. And uh, you guys all get a free, you know, college education here tonight. So um, I'm going to pray over him. Um, if you guys want to, to pray as well, silent in your seats and we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our sweet brother Aaron. We thank you for um, how you have woven him into the fabric of this community. Lord, we thank you for the calling that you've placed on his life, the gifts and the passions that you've given him, um, that he's able to impart uh, to so many um, in the academic world and through his students, um, that he's, uh, he's influencing people that are going to go to the ends of the earth uh, to make your name famous and to, uh, to advance your kingdom in any number of ways. Uh, and Lord, we, we want to just honor him tonight uh, for, for coming alongside of us, for sharing his gift with us. Uh, and Father, I pray ultimately that through his words, um, he brings us into a deeper relationship with you, uh, a, a deeper revelation of who you are and, and what your love really looks like. And so, Lord, we ask that you uh, anoint his lips to speak your truth uh, just right now, Lord, and that we would all be receptive to it. And we pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, I, I kind of hate high expectations, because if I suck, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so I'm very glad. I'm very glad to be here tonight. I'm, I'm glad uh, I was able to speak this morning, so you guys get like round two, which means all the things that I messed up the first sermon, I can try to fix this one, so you get the better end of the deal uh, by being the, the people who come at the night service. But tonight, I want to talk about this I think, as Ryan was telling me that you guys have been going through a series uh, talking about signposts in the mist, there's one idea that kind of stuck in my head that I've been reading and researching as of late, and it's, it's this idea that if we understand the Old Testament, or to understand the Old Testament well, we have to understand the master narrative of Christ. We have to really kind of get this picture of who Jesus is to understand some of the hard texts of the Old Testament. And so I know Ryan had talked to you already, I preached a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus would use the Old Testament, how he talked about the Old Testament, or how the early church talked about the Old Testament or understood it. And so tonight, we're going to actually talk about 
uh, how do we read, how do we understand the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is? For our own selves, when we're reading and we're studying, how do we understand the Old Testament, especially some of the hard texts of the Old Testament? Because if we're all really honest with each other, the Old Testament is really hard to understand. Sometimes there are some passages that make a lot of sense, and then other times there are just ones that don't make any sense at all. And so there's a couple different ways you can take that. One of the first ways is that you can say that sometimes the passage just makes no sense. Like you read it and you just kind of ignore it because you're just like, I don't understand, right? So like there's one in, in Genesis 6, 4, it says this, Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. If you get like three biblical scholars in the room and you say, what does this verse mean? They'll just go, I don't know. Right? Because it, it makes no sense. We don't really understand what Nephilim, we don't understand this word. We've got some best case guesses of it, but it's just one of those passages that are just really hard to understand. We also get uh, ones that are so cultural or so highly contextual that unless we understand what's going on behind the scenes of the, of the text, of the verse, we're going to miss it completely. So like in Leviticus 19, 28, it says this, do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. Growing up in like a really conservative church, like I learned that if you had tattoos and you came to church and you got saved, you're fine. <laughs> if you're a church kid, and you get a tattoo, it's a one-way ticket to hell. Like there's no coming back from getting a tattoo because this verse, you grew up with this verse and you knew it. Um, and though that's not the text we're gonna talk about tonight, it's, it's one of these verses that if you don't understand what's happening behind the scenes, you miss it. Cutting your body for the dead and getting tattoos was a sign that you worshiped a certain pagan god or other, other pagan gods within the ancient Near East civilizations. Now, the Israelites had their own practice for signifying who they, who they worshipped, and that was actually the practice of circumcision, for, for the gentlemen anyways, right? That was their way of cutting their body in some sense for the Lord. And so he was telling them, don't cut yourself in this way. This is the practice I have for you. And if we miss that, we might actually read that text and tell people who have tattoos, you're going to hell, and there's quite a few of us then that are going to be done for, Right? But the texts that we're going to talk about tonight are texts that are often called the text of terror or the text of exclusion. It's kind of like terms that people used about the Bible when they're dealing with really hard texts and they don't know what to do with them. And so one of the first ones that we're going to do uh, is Deuteronomy 23.1. This one's a really interesting one. It says this, uh, in the message it says, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. Uh, if you have your NIV version or really any other version, it's a lot more explicit than the message. Eugene Peterson, who translated it, tried to like calm it down. But if you read it in the other versions, it's quite a bit more explicit of what he's saying there. But at the end of the day, basically anyone who's emasculated, anyone who, uh, any man who doesn't have his man parts can't be a part of the people of God. And it's a really strange verse. And we get this kind of picture of people who are left out of the children of God, the Israelites, because of some kind of physical condition usually thrust upon them, not even on their own choice, and they'd be left out. Another one that we're going to deal with is this one. It's a, it's a little bit longer, so just um, follow along with me here. It's in Deuteronomy 28.15. I'm kind of picking on Deuteronomy tonight, but 28.15 through 25, and it goes like this. 
However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. I could keep going on with that, but essentially it's uh, the Oprah Winfrey of giving away cars, except for about curses. Like you get a curse, you get a curse, you get a curse. Lucky you also get a curse, right? Uh, it's a very interesting passage, and we're going to kind of deal with both of them today, and we're going to try to look at and see how do we understand these passages in light of who Jesus is, because when we read about Jesus, we see a much different picture about who God wants his people to be, or who are included, or how God deals with these kind of things than we might see in the Old Testament. But this means this, what we do with these texts... How we as the church handle them is drastically important because if we look into culture, and this is me kind of being anecdotal as a theologian, if we look into culture, something that we notice that there's like three things that constantly kind of keep coming up within culture and Christianity. And the three are this. We see that people use these passages in the Bible to actually say, look how terrible Christians are. Look how terrible their God is because this is what their God wants. If, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is like quickly like YouTube, um, for a fun experiment, you can like YouTube Quran versus Bible. And there's like these people that will like walk around big cities with uh, a Bible in their hand that's actually got a cover of the Quran on it. And they'll walk around and they'll read some of these same texts and they'll read them to people and be like, can you believe the Muslims? And then when everyone's like, yeah, they're the worst. That religion is terrible. Look how bad it is. They go, surprise, it's the Bible, right? And it really messes with people because they don't understand that these texts are in there and they're hard to understand. The second thing that's really hard in culture today is how, the, how science and the Bible relate. And though we're not gonna talk about that, that's another big issue the church has to constantly talk about. How do we as Christians talk about science? And then finally, the third one that I would say is probably really tough for us as Christians to deal with is this idea that there is a God who is all-loving and who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-places, and he loves us and he wants good for us, and yet evil still exists in the world. And yet there's still pain and suffering within the world. And these are kind of like the three things that I've noticed as I've taught over the years that, that people really struggle with. And so... If we as Christians are going to be good witnesses to the love of God within the world, we have to deal with all of these. And we have to deal with the difficult text of the Bible. Because it's the very kind of core of how we understand who God is. It's the message of who God is to us as his people. So if we're going to be able to express this to the world, we have to understand them well. So there's three ways. There's three ways that people have tried to handle these. 
If I'm teaching, like, and this is me kind of getting into, like, professor mode here. If I'm kind of, like, teaching the three different ways that people have tried to deal with these uh, very fun texts, I said in the first uh, service, like, if you probably heard those two texts, it'd be like, I think, I'd, I think I'm ready to leave now. Like, these are weird. Why is this guy talking about these, right? But there's three ways that people have tried to deal with them. The first one is they will say, well, it makes sense that God was ready to curse everyone who doesn't follow his commands because God just really hates evil. He just hates it. So, and he can't deal with it. And so it's okay that God curses people because they're just all bad people. And I think to myself, man, if that's the case, we're all kind of screwed. Because as Paul says in Romans, we've all fallen short of some kind of ideal of who God is. We've all been evil. And so this kind of first view has really died out among people who are trying to read these, these Old Testament texts. And the other one, another view that's more popular nowadays is that the, the ancient Near East people, the Israelites in their time, right after the Exodus, right after they left Egypt was when a lot of these laws were written, that they just didn't understand God very well. That they kind of just messed up. Really, they, they misheard from God. God said something and they, and they just kind of missed it. And so they wrote it down wrong. And so we can just kind of throw out that section of the Bible because it doesn't really help us. And then me as someone who like studies the Bible and I see kind of the beauty of it, I go, no. Like we can't just throw it out. We have to deal with it. There's something there, I'm sure, if we just would actually take the time to try and understand it. And so... We have a, a third view that's really kind of becoming popular among scholars uh, in trying to deal with these things. And this is the idea that God accommodates himself to us. God reveals himself in ways that, in which we can understand as people. Because God is so big and he's so much greater than us that how can we possibly fathom how good he is? And so this view is called like an accommodation or coping view. Um, and Michael Gorman, who is a, he's a great scholar, he, he kind of puts it this way. He says, God in his love appears as ugly as our ugly hearts require him to be and as beautiful as our redeemed hearts allow him to be. Sometimes God, in the way that we actually perceive him, he actually looks the way that we want him to look, but it's not because that's actually who God is, but he's in the moment allowing us to deal with him in that way but he's constantly drawing us to understand him better, constantly wanting us to know who he is more. And so how do we do this? How are we gonna kind of handle this view within Deuteronomy 23? Because we're gonna stick with that one first and then we'll jump in Deuteronomy 28. The first things that we have to recognize is if we're going to read these texts well, we have to understand something about Jesus. If we said that this whole idea is that we're gonna read it in light of who Jesus is, the very first thing we have to say is that Jesus is God revealed to us. That Jesus is God revealed to us, which means this, the incarnate son, Jesus, reveals what God has always been like. Jesus shows us a picture not just of who God is, but who God has always been, past, present, and future, because he's the most accurate representation of God. And so we say this, if Jesus is the most clear and accurate revelation of who God is in his nature then what Jesus does is not the exception, but the rule of who God is. Jesus is the rule or the standard of who God is, even through history. When I look at who, at who God is, when I try to think about who God is, 
I have to think about who Christ is. And all the things that I, I'm going to try to struggle with. So let's do this. Let's jump into Deuteronomy 23.1. We're going to kind of use those as kind of the guiding framework for understanding these passages. And then we're going to see how Jesus reinterprets this passage for us. Right? So again, just to, just to remind you, Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. No eunuch can enter into the congregation. So as I teach my, my hermeneutic students, which is a fancy word for if I teach my students who are learning how to read the Bible well, I say the first thing, one of the first things we have to do is understand the context, the history. Why are they writing this the way they're writing it? And as, you, um, as we kind of go through this, we recognize that it's a really cultural passage. There's two things that this passage is dealing with. First, if you're a eunuch, you probably couldn't be circumcised. You couldn't give the symbol of what it meant to be a part of the people of God as uh, the Israelite law said you should. You should be circumcised to be a part of the people of God. Anyone who's not circumcised is immediately pushed out. The second one is even if they could have been circumcised, they couldn't actually fulfill the command in Genesis that says, be fruitful and multiply. This passage deals with a group of people who, according to like the Israelite view, couldn't give anything to the people. They couldn't give anything to God. They, they were worth nothing. In fact, eunuchs were often used as slaves or servants. They were used as uh, people to watch houses. They were kind of seen as people who were less than other people due to their physical condition. But it's interesting because when we look at this passage... If we try to understand this through Christ, we actually get a very clear, very clear understanding of this passage. It's kind of funny, but if we, if we, if we don't take the time, we'll miss it. So we're going to jump to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to get a picture of how, what this looks like. So in Acts chapter 8, we have this story of a eunuch. We have a story of, of, of the one who actually gets kicked out or pushed out of the community. And it starts like this. And we're going to kind of take these as sections at a time and talk about them. So in 826, it starts off with this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandake which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So you get a really interesting thing. We're gonna like stop here for just a second. The first thing we recognize that Luke is telling us, because Luke is the writer of this, of this book of Acts. The first thing that he kind of recalls for his readers is that we're dealing with someone who is a eunuch. We're dealing with someone who is actually not allowed to be a part of the people of God. If, if I go off of Deuteronomy 23.1, this person, this person can't be included. This person's left out. But then the second thing that Luke is really clear about, about this eunuch, is that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So even though he was not allowed to be a part of the congregation, according to the law, he still wanted to know God and love God. And even more so than that, he's from Ethiopia, so he's quite a far ways away from Jerusalem. He was willing to travel a long distance to go and worship God as he had read that he was supposed to. Because he loved God even if he wasn't a part, be allowed to be a part of the people. 
And the third thing we get is there, that he's reading the book of Isaiah on his way home. So clearly he loves God enough, he wants to know God enough that he's actually going to kind of enthrow himself within Hebrew scriptures. He wants to know more about this very God that he, that he loves, even though he can't be a part of the community. Let's go to the next section. So Luke says this, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked, how can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea. So Luke, Luke here now all of a sudden kind of gives us this picture. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why for me it's a funny picture. And for like no one else it is. Usually what I find funny, everyone else is like, this guy's weird. Um, I see this like picture in my mind using my biblical imagination of like Philip just kind of like running next to a chariot. And just being like, hey man, how you doing? What you reading there? Right? Again, no one finds that funny except for me. Uh, so he's, he's kind of going by and he sees this eunuch. And, and Luke starts off with this very important phrase, the spirit told Philip. So we know this is something according to Luke that's really important. That's actually kind of given credentials, that's given proof, because the Spirit's telling Philip to do this. And Philip goes and he starts to talk with the eunuch, and the eunuch's reading this beautiful passage in Isaiah 53. And he just, he just doesn't get it. It doesn't make sense. If, if an Israelite was reading or a Jew was reading Isaiah 53, they would say, this is the Messiah who's going to come and save us from Rome. This is a picture of what that looks like. But the Ethiopian eunuch didn't get it. And so he asked Philip, hey, can you explain this to me? And then all of a sudden, Philip goes into the story about who Jesus is. Look at who Jesus is. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He suffered for you. He explains this passage, this beautiful story kind of that's unfolding out of Isaiah 53 and uses the narrative of who Jesus is and he tells Philip about it. And this changes everything for Philip. I'm sorry, for the eunuch. The eunuch, the eunuch all of a sudden realizes something he's never realized before. Because of this Jesus person, I get to be a part of the community. And, and he signifies it by this. He goes, look, there's some water. What can stop me from being baptized? Maybe in the church today, like we read, like what can stop me from being baptized? And we get this like picture of baptism today where, you know, there's a congregation, you come up and you get baptized from it. Everyone claps and cheers and yay, you get baptized, right? But baptism in that time was a bit different. Baptism was a Jewish practice. 
It was a practice of cleansing. So if you had sinned against God, you would do your sacrifices and you would also be baptized because that's how you got to be a part back into the community. You couldn't be a part of the community unless you got baptized and cleansed. The eunuch never was allowed to be baptized. The eunuch, the eunuch was excluded because of Deuteronomy 23. He wasn't allowed. He's isolated. He's not allowed to be a part of the community. He's never been able to practice baptism. He's never known what it's like to have this good community of people, people who follow the same God that he loves. And so when Philip uh, tells him the story of Jesus and all of a sudden he sees water, he goes, he asks the question, the funny question, what can stop me from being baptized? And what he's kind of saying to Philip is, does, does me being a eunuch stop me from being a part of this people? Because I, I know what Deuteronomy says, I'm not allowed to be. But with this Jesus guy, is there anything stopping me? And immediately they get down and Philip baptized him. He finally gets to be a part of the people of God that he's always been excluded from. But this new people of God who are following Christ. When, when the eunuch encounters the risen Christ, when the eunuch encounters Jesus, it changes his entire story. This, this passage in Deuteronomy 23, one, now just actually shows something. It shows that how powerful, how amazing Christ is because those who are left out are now allowed to be a part. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be that eunuch, to have this moment of, of finally getting to be a part of people, of the community, to finally feeling like he belongs, to finally feeling like his physical appearance hasn't excluded him from the community any longer because of this guy named Jesus. And so if we kind of, if we kind of move forward, it's a, it's a beautiful picture that we get with this. And when I say this, when our lives are reframed around the master narrative of Christ crucified, the violence, terror, and exclusion that we have either created or been forced into get swept up into the divine act of God's suffering. And so another way to put it is, in the crucifixion of Christ, all exclusion, structures of worth, separation, curses, and violence are taken up into God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is the divine moment of Jesus actually dying for people so that people who are left out now get to be a part. Jesus, who dies for people, who suffers on our behalf, actually gets to bring everyone else in. Everyone is now accepted. So Deuteronomy 28, uh, if we jump there for a second, and we'll, we'll be quicker with this one, because it's a very interesting one, right? If you, if you know the context of what's happening with Deuteronomy 28, we get all these curses, and all the curses are coming from not following the laws that actually start Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. You get this list of, like, here's everything you should do. And then if you don't, again, Oprah Winfrey, everyone gets a curse, Right? So the Israelites had this like interesting way of understanding God that was different than maybe we think about it. Because for the Israelites, God wasn't directly cursing them. But in the covenant between them and God, God protected them. And if they decided to not follow the covenant, if like children they were to say to their father, I'm okay, I don't need you, 
They, they would lose the protection of the father. And this is how the Israelites would have seen it. If, if they would not follow the covenant, it was as if they pushed their father back and the protection that they had from their father away, and they're opening themselves up to all of this, uh, all these curses that are described in, in Deuteronomy 28. So the way they perceived God was this very kind of fatherly figure who they could either decide to be a part of the family of God. Remember, that's kind of the way they saw themselves, the children of God, the chosen people of God, but they could push themselves away. And, and how do we handle this? Because it's hard to recognize, it's hard to read this passage and go, man, God's good. Because there's just so much kind of negativity happening in this passage. There's so much cursing. There's so much struggle and pain for people. How do we deal with this? And, and so I love uh, my area of study in my PhD that I'm working on is primarily Paul. Um, and me and Paul have a love-hate relationship, right? Sometimes I love Paul, and other times I'm like, Paul, man, you seem so mad, right? Um, but so if we go to Galatians, it's one of my favorite my favorite of his letters, in Galatians 3, it says this. Um, if you're following along, it's Galatians 3, 10 through 14. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law, remember Deuteronomy 28, here's all the works that you have to, have to follow. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Wait, what was that, Paul? For anyone who actually follows them, for all who rely on them, you're under a curse. As it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And here's the important part. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, also in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Another way to say it is cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul makes this statement, if he's, he's recalling his readers, look, you can't follow, if you know what's happening in Galatians, in Galatia, the region, there's this struggle between Jews that follow Jesus and Gentiles. And this struggle is this, the Jews who follow Jesus want the Gentiles to follow the law. They want them to become circumcised, they want them to follow Torah, they want them to, to basically become good Jews and also follow Jesus. And for Paul, this is a big problem. Because for Paul, he says, no, to follow Jesus, you don't have to follow the law of Torah. You, circumcision, that doesn't matter anymore. The kinds of food that you eat, whether you eat clean or unclean foods, none of that matters because all of this is resting on Jesus. If you try to follow the law, according to Paul's argument, you're living under a curse. Remember all these curses in Deuteronomy 28. You're, just, you're living under these curses because no one can actually uphold this law. This law is impossible to uphold. In Romans, he kind of makes this mention about how the law was, was only there to show us just how bad we truly are, just how, how much we've messed up according to the standards of God. And so he goes, so if we try to follow the law, you're all gonna, you're all gonna live under this curse, but 
if we understand Jesus and the narrative of who Jesus is by Jesus doing the very thing that Deuteronomy said was a curse, by, by hanging on a tree, by dying for us, he becomes the curse for us. He takes the curse upon himself. He takes all of the trouble, all the struggle of the law, all of our human effort that ultimately fails. He takes this upon himself and he says, I'll be the curse on your behalf. I'll take it unto myself. And so, and so we keep learning this picture of Jesus, this very picture of Jesus, who in his own suffering, by his own choice of suffering on our behalf, takes the curse of the law upon himself. He takes all the exclusion. Those who are left out of the people of God now get to be a part of the people of God. Again, we say this way, in the crucifixion of Christ, all exclusion, structures of worth, separation, curses, and violence are taken up into God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Because ultimately, Christ took, this, took the violence upon himself. He didn't have to, but he did. He took the suffering upon himself. Even though he didn't have to, he did. And so this, this provides us some kind of a way to be able to read the Old Testament in a way that says, okay, I, I can kind of get it now. I can kind of get this picture of how do I read this Old Testament and how do I see it in light of who Jesus is? Because it seems like every time I read something kind of negative in the Old Testament, and of course, we have to be nuanced about this, but when we, when we come across these texts, the first thing I want to say is, how does Jesus change this? How did Jesus, how did Jesus make this redeemed? How did Jesus uh, help us understand what this text says. But what, what we have to go to next, and, and one struggle uh, theologians and biblical scholars often always have is the, kind of the next moment. What does this mean for us? Like, this sounds great. Like, great, I can read the Old Testament and I can maybe understand it just, just that much bit more, but what does it actually mean for me? What's my response to any of this? And so I have two things here. I say this, the master narrative of Christ invites us, much like the eunuch, to recognize that all suffering, pain, all violence is reinterpreted through Christ. So the first thing that it means for me is it's not just the Old Testament pain and violence and suffering that gets reinterpreted through Christ, but it's also the pain and violence and suffering that goes, through, uh, goes on today in our culture, in our time, that also needs to be reinterpreted through Christ that also needs the master narrative of Christ to change it, to re-understand it. Because when we, when we understand Jesus, we recognize that none of this violence, none of the curses, none of the pain and suffering are part of the kingdom that he started. Pain and suffering and violence is not a part of who Jesus is because if we read Jesus well, pain and violence and suffering is all taken up into Jesus. He takes upon himself all of it. So it's not a part of the kingdom. So we have to kind of figure out a better way to deal with this. And so the second thing we have to think is this, through the spirit, here's kind of where it goes for us as the church. We as the church participate in the divine reshaping of the kingdom that is now, but not yet. If who Jesus is, is someone who reimagines or reinterprets all of the struggles, all the pain, all the violence, and all the suffering within the world, if we have to understand it through Jesus and understand how Jesus changes all of this, then the second thing we re realize is that as Christians, it's our divine call to take this upon ourselves, to be a part of reshaping the world. 
to be a part of building the kingdom, kind of recalling this prayer of Jesus that we, we call the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. How is it that we are playing a part of this? How is it that we, people who have been changed by Christ, now begin to accept the violence and the suffering that we shoulder those for other people? That we might take upon our own shoulders, just as Jesus did on the cross, the pain of others. How do we do that ourselves? And it's one of the hardest calls there is as a Christian because it requires so much of us. Because it actually requires that we do what Jesus kind of said that we should do. No greater love has a brother or a friend than to lay down their life for another. To, to love our enemies as we love ourselves and to pray for those who persecute us. To care for, to care for the person who's been pushed out. I love, Ryan used this quote, and I love using it too. He says this uh, from N.T. Wright. He goes, Jesus, the Jesus we might discover if we really looked is larger and more disturbing, more urgent than we had ever imagined. We have successfully managed to hide behind other questions and to avoid the huge world-shaking challenge of Jesus' central claim and achievement. It is we, the churches, who have been the real reductionists. We have reduced the kingdom of God to private piety, the victory of the cross to, conf uh, to comfort for the conscience. Easter itself to a happy escapist ending after a sad, dark tale. Piety, conscience, and ultimate happiness are important, but not nearly as important as Jesus himself. Because the Jesus that reimagines the world, the story of Jesus, this narration of Jesus, is the same narration that we're supposed to take on. The early church kind of understood it a little bit different, right? This word Christian, it's a funny word. Uh, the Romans actually used it to insult Christians. So take it upon Christians to take an insult and make me like, yeah, that's our name now. Thanks, Romes, Romans, right? Because Christian actually just means little Christs. They looked at Christians, they looked at followers of Christ, and they said, you're just trying to be a little Christ. And the church said, Yep. That, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Because the story of Christ is my story. The way that Christ lived and died is the way that I want to live and die. The story of Christ reshapes us. And so, so what I want to do, what I want to do together and as a community is to contemplate somewhat the story of Christ. And I think it'd be, it'd be interesting, it's, it's different, and it's challenging that if we actually kind of reimagine our own stories in light of who Jesus is the same way that the eunuch did by contemplating Isaiah 53 by thinking through it and so what I'm going to do is this I'm going to read Isaiah 53 and it's a bit longer so just kind of close your eyes put your head down just think through what I'm saying as I'm saying it and imagine yourself in this moment, imagine the story of Christ changing and shaping your story and imagine what that means for you, how you're supposed to respond. And then after I finish reading it, we have communion up here. And, and I hope that you would come up and take communion, but instead of just dipping it and eating it and kind of going on with the time, I would like you to take a piece of the bread and dip it and kind of head back to your seat and hold that bread in your hand for a little bit. And, and Isaiah 53 will be up on the screens. 
and take that piece of bread as the call for you to become more like Christ. And think through Isaiah 53 and what does that mean for you? What does it look like if you embodied the story of Christ as you're holding on to the body and the blood of Christ as it's shed for us? Just as Christ has broken his body and shed his blood for us, how are we called to do the same for others? And so I'm gonna read that. We also have up here the giving boxes. Uh, So if you have giving and you want to give, now is the time to kind of do that together in this moment as we partake as a community. So again, I'm gonna read this. As soon as I finish reading it, come up, partake of communion, and we'll we'll keep going with worship. Says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Come take and eat and contemplate this as you go. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.